Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news organization at the NevadaIndependent.com. You can make a tax-deductible contribution there, too. We appreciate all of the support from our readers and, of course, our podcast listeners. Today, our guest on the podcast is Kimberly Mull. We're going to talk to her in a little bit. She's a victim's right advocate whose efforts to combat sexual harassment in Carson City led to the resignation of a state senator. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. And later, Managing Editor Elizabeth Thompson and I will give our takes on some big issues of the day. And speaking of those, first, a few headlines from the Indy this week. The big news, of course, is our story of a second accuser coming forward to, to say that Nevada Democratic Congressman Ruben Keewen is guilty of sexual misconduct. The woman was a lobbyist for two sessions, says she faced unwanted texting and touching from Keewen. We reviewed hundreds of text messages from the woman whose story echoes that of a former Keewen campaign staffer who talked to the online news site BuzzFeed. Both women are very credible and have evidence. Keewen has denied the first woman's story and outrageously implied the second was an upset former girlfriend. She says she never dated him and there's no evidence that they did. Keewen can't last much longer as calls for him to resign have begun anew. And I hope you all will please take the time, if you have not already, to read Megan Messerly's carefully reported story and my blog post on why and how we did this story. Megan also had another exclusive this week, getting the jump on everyone with news of Gaming Control Board Chairman A.G. Burnett's resignation. Burnett's leaving a year early to take a job with a prominent law firm, McDonald Carano. His recent tenure will be defined by his decision to surreptitiously record Attorney General Adam Laxalt, whom he believed was trying to get the state to intervene in a Las Vegas Sands court case because Laxalt's major donor, Sheldon Adelson, the chairman of that company, was pushing for it. That was a courageous act because Burnett cares deeply about the integrity of the regulatory system. But it wasn't just the Laxalt story that showed this. That's the feature that defined Burnett's tenure. Our intrepid education reporter Jackie Valley had two interesting pieces this week. One was about a couple of data mining gurus trying to help students by producing facts and figures to help achievement in the school district. The other was about that ongoing school district reorganization, which administrators and trustees have resisted. And now they're hiring yet another consultant to help out as they face being penalized for being out of compliance with that law. Both are stories that affect ordinary people. You should check them out on the site. Finally, if you care about your power bills in the new energy world, check out Riley Snyder's and Daniel Rothberg's deep look at how various groups feel about the energy choice question on next year's ballot. Envy Energy finally has left Switzerland and is firmly opposed. Others are taking some more moderate positions, even some renewable advocacy groups. Riley and Daniel read hundreds of pages of filings and distilled them into words that normal people, you know, like editors, can understand. Now, it's time for that part of the podcast where we interview an interesting person. I, I have to say that today's person, you probably don't know much about. Her name is Kimberly Mall. But without Kimberly's courageous acts, uh, Mark Menendo, who has serially harassed women for decades in Carson City, would still be a state senator. He is not because of Kimberly's brave actions up there in the legislature. She's a victim's right advocate. We wrote all about her story on the Independent site. Please go take a look at that from a couple weekends ago. 
Kimberly Mall joins us on the phone from Reno. Welcome to the podcast, Kimberly. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I just want to first just lay out there that I'm not the heroic one. The women um, and men that came forward and um, shared their story with the investigator about their victimization um, from Senator Menendo or former Senator Menendo um, are the real heroes in this. And I'm, I was just being an advocate, which is what I'm trained to do. Kimberly, I wanted to ask you, hi, it's Elizabeth Thompson, uh, Managing Editor. What, were you surprised nearly 60 people came forward to speak to that investigator? Did you have any idea on day one when you first started hearing, you know, the quiet whispers between some of these women who, who had been harassed that, that so many people were going to end up coming forward and, and what the scope of this would end up being? Um, I, I, yes and no. It's a really hard question. Um, you know, really from the first day that I stepped into the legislative building um, for special session, um, I, I was warned, um, essentially, by other female lobbyists that, you know, do not, be, do not find yourself alone with this, this senator. Um, do not go to his office alone. Do not, um, you know, end up in the hallway alone with him. Um, you know, do whatever you can in, in front of other people. Always bring someone with you. And so, um, you know, that was concerning from the, from the get-go. And so I really just avoided the man the entire time I was there. Um, and so when I started hearing, you know, some of the whispers and everything, I wasn't surprised because I'd already been warned about him. Um, but then once I started getting, um, you know, really the feel for, I guess, kind of how in-depth some of the, the stories were, um, you know, it wasn't just comments, um, you know, really um, it came down to, you know, um, screaming and yelling and um, you know, even even grabbing at, at one point. And so that that really, once I realized kind of the degree to it, um, you know, it, 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 I don't find it too surprising that so many people came forward um, just because I, I think if you look at everything that's happened around the country with all these, with all these stories, it's never just one incident. It's never just one victim. Um, you know, uh, these, these abusers are habitual abusers and, um, they, they get away with it because society has placed this shame on women that we are supposed to keep quiet, that we're supposed to just take it, that um, we're not supposed to say anything. And thankfully to movements like the, the Me Too movement and um, some other things, you know, you kind of start seeing our voices come up and us saying, you know, we're not taking it anymore. And, and this generation, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to speak up for ourselves and we're going to call people to the carpet. And um, that's, that's exactly what happened in Carson City. And um, I think you're going to see more and more of it on a national level. And I think you're going to see more and more of it here on the state level as well. Well, I think you're right, uh, and, and I'm really hoping that the Nevada Independent as an institution is going to be part of, of bringing more of these stories forward, because I think there are more to tell. One thing I'm, I'm interested in, uh, Kimberly, and, and, and in the story, uh, you talked about when some of these interns were saying things, and, and the phrase you said, all my feelers are up. And I'm wondering if, if that came from your experience as a victim's rights advocate. Do you think that maybe you recognize things that maybe might not have been immediately apparent uh, to others up there? If your experience in your own life, uh, you've said openly that you're a victim of, of, of uh, you're a survivor of sexual assault yourself, uh, that, that you deal with these kinds of issues all the time. Do you think that helped you in this situation? Um, absolutely. You know, I... I, I you know, so much as a, from an advocate perspective, but really, like you said, being being a survivor of um, domestic minor sex trafficking and being a survivor of sexual assault, um, I really feel like, you know, it's just, 
it's one of those things, you know, we used to call it woman's intuition, um, but really it's just one of those things where, you know, when you hear young women, um, well, really, just essentially, when you hear young women saying that a senator is saying anything to them, and we're talking like interns that are 21, 22 years old, and, um, you know, any kind of casual conversation that has anything to do with their looks, their appearance, or anything to that extent, or, you know, approaching them at a bar or touching them um, should make anyone's quote-unquote feelers go up. It should make anyone go, this is not appropriate. That does not sound appropriate, um, you know, to them. Um, so I would hope it would make anyone's, you know, grab anyone's attention, but, but especially as a survivor, it definitely grabbed my attention and made me um, want to start, you know, poking my nose around and really kind of see what was going on. Kimberly, I want to ask you a question about uh, this this sort of fine, delicate line that um, you as an advocate and we as journalists uh, have to walk when we realize that we're talking to a victim um, who has some fear and trepidation about um, giving their name, um, fear of possible professional repercussions or um, some price they might even pay, you know, in their personal life. And as you mentioned earlier, just uh, the general, you know, sort of shame and embarrassment that goes along with with these type of experiences. We, you know, we I don't know if you read it, but we we wrote a story um, concurrent with the the Menendo report, in which we asked past legislative leaders, you know, what did they know? When did they know it? What did they choose to do about it uh, under their leadership um, when they heard these whispers and or direct complaints about Senator Menendo? And I was a little astonished at the answers. Uh, in some cases, there was almost a complete lack of willingness to take any kind of responsibility for having been in a position to follow up, uh, to pursue um, possible uh, wrongdoing, to pursue misconduct. Um, so this is kind of a two-sided question. On the one hand, is what's going on right now, in your view, going to embolden people in leadership positions to perhaps take a stronger stance? And number two, how far should we go to try to convince victims to come forward and talk and perhaps to give their names or at least to provide substantiation in the form of emails or texts or Facebook messages or whatever the case may be, maybe bring witnesses forward or, or people who may be able to corroborate their story? What's the, what's the fine line there? I'm, I'm sure you must have walked this line as you were talking to some of these different young lob lobbyists trying to gently persuade them that the right thing to do was was to speak up what t tell me your your thoughts on that um well I'll, I'll take the first question first which is um you know review on leadership um you know emboldening them to take you know to take positions and then act um you know really like I did, I did read a story and about how um you know people in leadership positions from before you know they've heard the whispers they know and they've seen and they've seen it firsthand um and that's not just with Senator Menendo that's you know, just the culture um, within the legislature, not only here in Nevada, but also you know, I've been um, in Oklahoma and Texas and Washington, D.C., and it's just, um, you know, it's it's just any kind of business. Um, really, it's society as a whole. Like I said earlier, we have this idea of that women are just supposed to take it and just supposed to then shut up and not talk about it. And, you know, we're supposed to feel lucky that we get the attention, and we're supposed to feel lucky if he gives us, you know, the time of day or if he's flirting with us. We should take that as a compliment. And the reality is is that it's not a compliment. The reality is it's harassment. And, um, 
you know, there, there's other ways to compliment me than on my looks. You know, I'm a, I'm a smart, intelligent, ambitious person. Compliment me on that um, if it's appropriate. But if you have power or authority over me, it is never appropriate to, comp- you know, to compliment me in that kind of way unless it has directly in, re- in relation to the work that I'm doing for you. Um, and so, you know, I really think that the male and female leadership um, before, it was just really just going into that societal view of, you know, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, it's just, it's the way it is. It's it's um, the locker room talk, and it's boys will be boys. And the reality is, is boys will not be boys. Boys will be held accountable just like girls are. And that's what we need in our society. And we're very fortunate to have, um, to have, leadership now, such as Senators Pat Spearman and um, Aaron Ford, who, when I went to, were from the get-go, were, you know, what do we need to do? How do we, what do we do? How do we go about this? What do you need from us? And um, so we were very fortunate with that. And the second question that you asked about, you know, um, how far, you know, you said about convincing um, these young women to come forward, and it wasn't my job to convince them at all, and I, and I tried my best not to convince them. Um, because that's every single victim's personal decision to make. Um, you know, it's my victimization, it's my story, it's my body, and it's my timing. And so with that, that means that, you know, I will share what I want to share, with whom I want to share, when I want to share it, and no one else should be able to determine that except for myself. And so with these women, and the, um, really what I just try to do is let them know, here's an opportunity, the door's open, you are safe if you want to step into this environment and try to make, try to work with Senators Ford and Spearman um, to make that environment as structured and as um, compassionate and open and, um, as possible and to just let them know that they had the opportunity to share if they wanted to, but there was no pressure on them to do that. And um, I think what you see is when you create and foster that environment, and you um, listen to people and you listen to those who are experienced like Senator Ford did. You know, he really listened. He asked my opinions. He asked other victims' opinions once they came forward. And once he did that, he was able to create this environment that allowed, you know, almost 60 people to come forward in confidence and um, feel safe to come share their stories. And that's how come we got so many people to come forward is because they felt safe to do so. And that's completely, um, you know, completely to the credit of Senator Ford um, in, in his willingness to create that environment and to listen to people who were, like myself, who were like, this is what the victims need, this is what will help, and to take that and to listen to it and then to, and then to execute it. And I think in the past it has, that doesn't seem like that's been done, it doesn't seem like those questions have been asked. And once it was, it was just a floodgate opened, and I think you, you see the results of it. You know, it's interesting uh, mentioning all these people that came forward, Kimberly, and, and the report uh, that was prepared. And, and I'm really interested uh, in, in, in your take on this. You've talked a little bit about this already. As, an or, as a news organization, after this was done, I thought as the editor that we should request uh, that this report be released uh, because it was paid for by taxpayer money, I wanted to. I didn't want to identify anybody internally within within the independent. Some of the of our staffers thought that well, you know you can't stop that from happening. These women, it's such a small universe up there. They're going to know 
who they are. You can't do this as much as the journalistic imperative is to do it. We decided ultimately uh, the, the, the independent, uh, like most news organizations, is not a democracy. I had to make the decision eventually, uh, and we decided to request it. But you, and, and you know this now, uh, some Republicans are still attacking Senator Ford uh, for not releasing uh, the report. And it wasn't exactly, by the way, his decision. Uh, the, the LCB, the Legislative Council Bureau, had a say in this. You think that that report should never be made public, am I right? Absolutely. Um, you know, and I've, I fought hard, um, you know, really um, vocally trying to do everything I could to make sure, you know, that people understood how I felt and how others felt about it. And I'll be very honest, um, originally with my, own, with my own career, I was worried um, about it and um, was worried about, you know, if people knew I was, you know, the kind of the, the one that got the ball started um, aspect of it. And, um, you know, Nevada is a small state when it comes to the legislative um, community. And, um, you know, your reputation and what people think of you and being able to work with people is how you, you know, live or die um, at, your, at your job. And so um, I was originally it was, you know, not only for the victims but for myself included in that of making, you know, wanting to make sure that I was protected, that I wasn't going to lose my job, that, um, you know, that I wasn't going to get in trouble for, for going outside the system and speaking out and, and doing this. Um, whenever my job is to work with legislators and on a regular basis. And so I definitely think that it, it should stay confidential. Um, and I've been very vocal on some social media and with um, engaging with some, with some of the, the Republicans and others that are calling out, um, trying to get the report published, and being very specific that, you know, we, we have to look at the victim's interest. And I understand that the public you know, wants to know what happened, but the reality is you're asking to hear about how someone was victimized. You're asking for the details about how someone was hurt, how they were harmed, how they were, um, you know, they were embarrassed, how they were, how, how something was done to them. And um, I understand because it was a senator doing those things that people were like, well, we want to know what he did. But if you really think about it, you know, at the same time, if, if someone came into your home and hurt your family or hurt your wife, um, you, you would want to protect her. You would want to make sure that, you know, she was okay and that, you know, if something horrible, God forbid, happened to her, that she could decide who knew what happened to her, when, how it happened, that she was in control of that. And that's what we're trying to do with these victims. It may not have been, it might not have happened to them in their home, but it happened to them in their workplace. And it's the same kind of effect with, you know, we have to feel safe going into that building. We have to feel safe working with the people we work with. And just because you redact the names or you redact the company um, does not mean that the small number of legislators and the small number of lobbyists and um, policy officials in the state will not be able to tell who is who. I guarantee you, most of us can figure, we're a very small niche group. We can figure out who is who, who's what, you know, what was going on if you redact some of the information. And um, I did see a thing earlier today. Um, Wes Duncan was on a web show with the Review Journal, and he very specifically was asked this question, do you think it should be released? And he goes, well, I do think it should be released because it's public um, you know, because it's public money spent on it, and as a, a senator, he goes, however, we need to make sure we ensure the confidentiality. So it should only be released if we can ensure the confidentiality. And 
my perspective with that is, well, if you have 30-plus victims saying, I don't feel safe if this comes out, if, if, you, if this comes out even with my name and company redacted or information redacted, that I don't feel safe, I don't feel like I will be protected, it's our job to listen to them. It's our job to say, you know, okay, this, this shouldn't come forward. And so, um, you know, at one point and he said, you know, it should only come out if we ensure their confidentiality. Well, the fact is, is that the victims themselves and those involved in the process are telling you, you can't ensure their confidentiality. You can't, you can't protect all of us. And so, you know, at some point we have to listen. And Let me just stop you for a second, Kimberly, because I do want to say something about this, and I'm going to let Elizabeth jump back in. I have to tell you that right after this, a few weeks ago, Wes Duncan's campaign put out a a press release attacking uh, Senator Ford on on the report. And I will tell you that I believe Wes Duncan, uh, I've had tremendous respect for him for for years. I I believe that he's 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 an excellent public official, whether he was in the Assembly or in the Attorney General's office. He's very well liked. I engaged with him, Kimberly, and told him that this was outrageous, that, that he was playing into the same kind of politics that other Republicans who were purely political were. He seemed to understand my point of view on that. I don't, I don't know what he said on the RJ's web show. I, I, I gather from what you said uh, that he wants, he's thinking that he, now the position you can take is it should be re- released if you can ensure confidentiality. But I think your point is, is an important one in that you don't think uh, that confidentiality can be assured. Absolutely. Exactly. So let me let me just wrap up this discussion with you, Kimberly, by asking about what I really th- think you can talk about and what we really want to do with with these stories that we are still going to keep pursuing. And, and we're getting a lot of tips, most of them from people who don't want to come forward or have second or third-hand knowledge. But it would seem to me the goal of any of this, these stories by any news organization is to try to change the culture that you described. And uh, you've been up there, I've been up there much longer than you have been. That is a culture up there in that tiny world, within a tiny world, that is imbued. It's been imbued for years. You can, you can warn young women not to go near certain legislators. Stuff is still going to happen. Um, how do you change it? Um, you know, the reality is, is until um, it, it's going to be a generational thing. It's going to take... Um, you know, it's going to take generations, if not more than one, for society to to grow and adapt and to and to learn and to figure out that one, not only are women sick and tired and not going to take it anymore, but also that it's unacceptable to expect to begin with. Um, you know, I do want to I do want to you know thank commend y'all um, at the, the Nevada Independent for how you've been pursuing these stories. And not only Senator Menendo, but also with Congressman Keewen. Um because just like Senator Ford did with the um, with you know opening and creating that environment for for women and victims to come forward, you all have done the same thing with um, with your paper. And you know I've been approached by um, other news sources and papers and things of that such since, and or well, even before the story was published, and. Um, you know they were not um, they were not welcoming at all to the idea of um, you know of creating an environment like you did that would that would be victim focused that be victim centered and you know we want people it's not about um, just condemning you know everyone for every action. 
but it's about making sure that people have a safe place to share their stories when they're ready to do it. And by doing that, and as, as with your paper has, it, it allows people to come forward. And I think that's why you're, you know, you're getting those emails and those people coming. And I think, you know, as people see more and more stories that, you know, that you will protect them because they are victims. And just like, you know, you don't display the name of a rape victim, you don't, you know, you don't put the name out there of, um, of a sexual harassment victim if, they, if that person doesn't put their name out there because it could be more damage to them. And so, um, you know, you're, you're the first paper, the only paper that I've seen so far that's really kind of gotten it and that's kind of understood that and has taken it to, um, you know, to a level that's allowing people to come forward. And, you know, now that we have Congressman Keewen, second um, accuser coming forward, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you can't say for sure there will be more that come forward, but I definitely think it's, you know, kind of when those once the ball gets rolling, it gets rolling situations, um, as with every, every story that's come out across the nation. Um, but, you know, really we need – what we really need as a state and what we really need in these, in these situations um, across the nation are for, you know, for strong women to get put in these positions that have a history and a background of um, addressing these issues of sexual violence and sexual harassment and domestic violence and such in these positions so they can make, they can make a strong effort on the national and state level um, to make a difference, to, to change the culture and to get laws put in place that actually help victims that are not just what I call pretty on paper bills. Um, you know, we can, make a, we can make a really pretty piece of legislation that sounds amazing, but if it doesn't actually work in real life and if victims and advocates and prosecutors can't actually use it, then it does no good. And we have hundreds, if not thousands, of those laws across the country. And what we need are people with hearts of an advocate and the tenacity and the background um, and the fight in those in those leadership positions and those elected um, official positions in order to change to change the laws that will eventually change the culture. And so, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully that's what's going to start happening on, on the state and national level across the country. I, I really do hope you're right, and I hope uh, uh, we are part of that. And even though you don't uh, consider yourself a hero, uh, Kimberly, I certainly do. This never would have happened without your willingness to, to, to take uh, the, the, to take hold of these young women who were being harassed and to go and put your faith in, in some leaders who I believe really did act like leaders. I, I, I agree with you. I give you all the credit in the world, uh, and, 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 and I hope you keep uh, being an advocate the way that you have. And I really appreciate your taking the time to be, to be on the podcast uh, uh, today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Right. Elizabeth, I think what we should do now is talk a little bit about what Kimberly uh, w w was talking about in terms of, of what we are trying to do and, and, and the commitment that you and I have as the leaders of this organization and the culture of the independent that our staff believes in and that we are going to be a welcoming uh, environment for people to tell their stories anonymously, but that we believe that we are going to get these stories corroborated, and we are not going. We are going to think about the the rights of the people who are being accused, because not every accusation will be able to be proven, or, and there may be there may be some that are just flat out false. And so we're committed to doing that. 
We are. So that was the reason in these two stories we wrote, one on Senator Menendo and this other one on Representative Kewin, that we wrote corresponding blog posts, which were posted on your blog as the editor, explaining our thought process, uh, our internal process, how we went about the interviews, the questions we considered, the things we asked ourselves, what type of proof did we look for, and did we ask for, did we insist on having in the case of an anonymous source, which is very difficult, and this is controversial, and I understand that from a from a reader perspective, uh, when you have an anonymous source, there there will always be some question, even if it's just in the back of someone's mind about, well, what if this person is lying, or what if they're exaggerating, or what if they've, you know, somehow made up, you know, so, some evidence. So our job as journalists, right, is to assess whether the person seems essentially credible on the face. Uh, in this recent case with, with the uh, woman who uh, accused Representative Keewen, you talked to her first as the editor. Then you went and met with her with a reporter. You and this reporter independently verified hundreds of texts on her phone. You laid eyes on them. You read them. We were permitted not to take screenshots, but to write down transcript. We asked if we could talk to uh, anyone who witnessed any of the allegations, and, and there was one who was willing to talk to us, so we were able to corroborate in that way. We always ask an anonymous source, was there anyone you told about this at the time, and can we talk to that person privately and independently so that we can ask them some direct questions and, and again, find out, do the stories match up? Does the narrative make sense? And so, and it's all of these things together. There's no, when we when we made the decision as a team, okay, She's still she's anonymous, but here's here are the steps we've taken. Do we go ahead with this story? That you know there are, there are all these boxes as a team that we that we checked, and then we wanted to be transparent to our readers about it because frankly, there's a issue with media credibility in this country. We've got a president who, on a daily basis, calls into question the credibility of national media organizations. Uh, we can't control that, and we can't worry about that. But we want to be as transparent as we can. Uh, especially in these kinds of very sensitive, delicate uh, stories about our process and our thinking. And, and, the, and listen, readers, they're free to criticize and ask questions. Uh, the reaction on Twitter last night was interesting and all over the map from people who thought we absolutely did it the right way to, to people who believe that you should never use an anonymous source, uh, no matter what. But be that as it may, we're editors. We have to make those decisions. But we're uh, I'm happy that we're being transparent about it. And I, and I actually hope it starts a trend. I'd like to see other media organizations being being more upfront and open about their, their internal processes. We are committed to doing that with all of these stories and other stories that we're going to do when we, when we think that an explanation of our process will help give the readers more faith uh, in what we're doing. Because for, uh, as for all the reasons that you mentioned, what, what the president is doing, some of the egregious mistakes that people in our business have made that have cast doubts on our credibility. But as I said in, in the blog post, uh, uh, accompanying the story about the woman making the accusations against Congressman Kewin, is this a new frontier in journalism for a lot of different reasons. One of them is the reason that Kimberly mentioned, which is that some of these sexual harassment victims, even if they weren't raped, they feel like they, they, they have been metaphorically raped. They don't want their names out there. You add in the fact that this is a tiny state with a tiny uh, environment, as Kimberly uh, correctly described it, and then 
even though we want everyone to be a named source in any story, we think people will understand these factors. Uh, and, and one of the things about the culture of the independent that you and I agree on and the staff agrees on, I believe, is that we neither Megan Messerly nor I made any attempt to pressure this woman to go public. This, as Kimberly said, this is their life. Uh, she has to be willing to do it herself. She did come to us originally, so there was some interest in doing it. But she, if she, she, we didn't pressure her to give up the screenshots. We told her what the, what what would happen. The people would call the story into question. She understood that, um, but. There's all kinds of different uh, 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 metrics that we're going to use before we decide to go with an anonymous source. We're not going to do it every time. I can tell you that I think there will probably be some stories that we will say, listen, we want to do this story, but it just we haven't been able to get enough corroboration. We're not sure that it's right. We, you know, it's not that you're putting a person's this person. You're put your your. I mean, this this case it was a congressman. You know, the, the, whatever position this person is in, their life is going to be forever changed by an accusation being put out there. We take that seriously as well. And you make one mistake. One major mistake in something like this, it's difficult to come back from that. Well, it's impossible. I mean, people's this is a career-ending thing for uh, a public official. And so we do we take both sides seriously, both both the, the feelings we you know of the victim, um, but also uh, the ethics involved, uh, you know, on the side of uh, these public officials. And you know, I'm one of those people who I do believe that, you know, these type of issues that, you know, we, we can write a credible story and everyone can read it. And I think most people believed it. I certainly believed her that this was true. It matched up with uh, the, this account of this other woman uh, in, in the BuzzFeed story against Kiwin. So, so it's, you know, we have the beginnings of a pattern here. If any more women come forward, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it follows the same pattern. There starts to be some pressure, public pressure at that point uh, on the on the public official to to resign or to to step down but I'm also not a fan of just trying people in the court of public opinion with without due process and so there are some in Washington DC right now who are who are calling for an ethics investigation into Rep Q and I support that until such time as he chooses to step down voluntarily if he ever does yes we should investigate these things independently the same type of independent investigation that happened in Carson City where people's names and identities are protected a completely impartial source comes in to do interviews and to seek it's it's the same process as the journalism process really evaluate the credibility of the individual and the evidence corroborate stories and you amass as much information as you can and then you make a determination and it and it goes and it goes from there so you know as journalists in some ways we have that same ethical responsibility as an investigator has to make sure absolutely sure that we get the story right that we're telling the, the truth, not just as we see it, but as we've been able to prove it and show it. You know, it's interesting because uh, there's some nuances to that, too, I think. For instance, Catherine Cortez Masto, uh, who was the, the U.S. senator uh, who replaced Harry Reid in Nevada and is a former prosecutor, former attorney general, has not called for her colleague, her Democratic colleague, uh, Ruben Kewin. She has said that there should be due process. She believes in due process very deeply, as I think most Americans should. But this isn't that simple, I don't think, Elizabeth, and I'll tell you why. Because there's politics that are involved here, too. They're, they're the same party, and I'm not being critical of her. Uh, but there's a lot of tribalism that has still gone on uh, in, in a lot.
lot of this, for instance, it took, what, a seventh accuser for all of these Democratic women in the Senate to finally say Al Franken should step down. So so the party label does matter, but there's it's more to it than that. Uh, yeah, Reuben Keenan, no one's, no one's proven a crime that he should have to get out. On the other hand, we know from the text from both of these women that, that, that he pursued and, and, and Kimberly talked about this, uh, relationships with people who were subordinate in a power dynamic, which should never happen. And so should he resign because of that? No, there's no crime committed, perhaps. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, we don't know the extent of it. But so there's a morality that maybe supersedes due process and politics. And that's why I think each of these situations is different and why the news media, as you pointed out, have to be so careful. We should not go with these things just by someone saying something that can't be corroborated. That's why we wanted the corroboration and, and seeing the text. That's why we wanted to contact people that she had contemporaneously talked to and talked to her, her boyfriend, try to get eyewitness accounts. We wouldn't have felt comfortable if we didn't have those texts uh, or, or have those eyewitness. I don't think that story ever would have been published. No, we needed to see the proof, and the, the proof was overwhelming. Hundreds of text messages, dozens of Facebook messages uh, over the course of a two-year period. I mean, it, it couldn't have been more convincing or compelling. And, and again, we independently verified that those messages came from him over his phone, his number. phone, his phone number and, and his Facebook uh, account. Here, here was an interesting aspect to me too. getting back to the morality of the situation. I, I have to say, you know, when you, I, I don't always editorialize as strongly as you do in my commentary, but I was astounded. I mean, we gave uh, Kewen's Chief, chief of Staff and Peter Koltek and Kewen had basically a half a day. Uh, is what we gave them yesterday to respond. And when Kiwin came back with this one-line statement about how he, well, he dated a lot of women when he was in the legislature, and he's not going to comment on anything to do with anything because of, you know, his, their privacy. I just, I about fell out of my chair because it was clear, and we made it clear in the 17 questions we presented to them, which were extremely specific. These were not vague questions. It was clear that they had never dated. You know, so I was just astounded. I mean, to, to, to try to play it off as if, oh, this is just what, a bitter ex-girlfriend? I mean, is that what he's basically trying to say? And and, and he didn't uh, – and the other thing that was astounding to me is that, you know, most elected officials with some experience dealing with the media, they understand that when you're asked a bunch of direct questions, you, you either confirm or deny <laughs> and you decide when and where you're going to explain. He did not deny anything. He just just this blanket statement. And one of the other things that was really damning, I, I thought that um, someone pointed out on Twitter last night that I hadn't even really thought through because, I mean, we read this story dozens and dozens of times as we were editing it. But um, one of his texts to this woman near the end of when he was pursuing her so avidly um, was when he decided he was going to run for Congress. And he said, oh, I won't be able to text you like this anymore. And that showed that he knew it was wrong. And he knew that he had to straighten out his act before he ran for Congress. That, that right there showed that there was some knowledge on his part that something was morally wrong with what he was doing, just, just as you're saying. Yeah, I, 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 I want to wrap this discussion up. But, but I, 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 I was as stunned as you were. I, I expected some kind of stiff arm. Uh, I don't know if he figured out who this woman was. My guess is he has not. My guess is that this happened so many times 
uh, that, that he texted women like this, whether they were subordinate to him or just women he wanted to date, uh, that he can't remember who this is. I, I hope that's the case for, 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 for her sake. But for him to demean her in that way and the clear implication that this was some jilted ex-girlfriend is an insult not just to her but to all women who have been put uh, in this position. And uh, you talk about being in a hole and keep digging. That That, that is what he did. Uh, Elizabeth, I, I do want to say that I hope anyone who's listening who has stories to tell knows will we'll read these stories and see the kind of, of, of care that we are taking uh, and, and with the sensitivity and that we will, will uh, be careful. Um, uh, I do want to wrap up, Elizabeth, by uh, having you present a very special Christmas message, <laughs> holiday message to our listeners. Yes, it's about giving <laughs> to the indie. <laughs> um, so, look, we're drawing near the end of the year, and I, I'd like to remind our listeners that we are a nonprofit. And what that means is that any donation to the Nevada Independent is considered a charitable contribution, which means it's tax deductible. Um, and there are time, you know, at the end of the year, there are uh, folks in a position to give who uh, sometimes may want to do a bit more charitable giving to get up to a certain, you know, deduction level on their tax return, or they just have a goal in mind for that year. So uh, we'd like to just uh, remind you that the Indy is here. We're a nonprofit. We need your support in order to be sustainable. We right now. We have a number of very generous corporate donors who have given us the seed money, essentially, to start the Nevada Independent. But those funds are not guaranteed long term. Some of those donors made a one-year commitment. Some of them a two-year commitment. Some of them made no commitment at all, and we have no idea if they'll, uh, they'll give again. So our revenue model is not based on all these big corporate donors hanging around forever. It's based on our readers. We want to be a reader-supported news organization Ultimately, my goal in my mind is I'd love to be 100% reader supported and not need any corporate donations that, you know, in my dream world, that's where we would, would get within a couple of years. We've created membership levels starting at just $5 a month. Uh, and going up from there, 10 a month, 20 a month, 50 a month, we've got different levels that support different parts of our operations. I want listeners to know that 80% of our budget goes to our staff. That means payroll, benefits, uh, and the pay that goes to the wonderful freelancers uh, we have who have joined our team and uh, and support us. Our budget's $1.2 million a year. Uh, that's 100000 a month. We have 100,000 readers on the site right now. If every reader were to give just $1 a month, we'd be set for sustainable funding. Of course, we all know that's not how it works in uh, in reader-supported news. But I really encourage you, if you listen to our podcast, if you read our news, at least get started with that 5 uh, dollars a month. If we had just 20,000 people who were reading us and giving five bucks a month, we'd be golden. We'd be sustainable forever. It would mean the world to us. And if you appreciate our work, we hope you'll consider it. Uh, very, very well said, uh, Elizabeth. And I want to echo what Elizabeth said uh, before we wrap this up. And that is, that's those kind of people that we want to sustain us through the long term. We're going to be around a long time. We're committed to this independent, nonprofit uh, model. We want the $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month. We don't want to have to depend uh, on the capriciousness of, cor of, of corporate donors. Uh, and so uh, we love our corporate donors. There have been people who have been incredibly generous and in thinking that we should that there should be another voice in this state. But it's, it's, it's the smaller donors that will, that will sustain us uh, over the long haul. And so during this season of giving, I hope you will consider uh, the Nevada Independent. Go on, go on our site and, and just click on the Support Our Work tab, and you can see the various levels Elizabeth uh, talked about. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on. 
Uh, and uh, that is all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. As always, we want to know what you think. We want your feedback. If you have ideas, criticism, or even gushing praise, even for me, you can email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. And if you haven't forgotten the overall site URL, I'll tell you again, the nevadaindependent.com. Go on iTunes, rate us, subscribe, and rate us highly, please. You can also find us on Google Play and a bunch of other platforms. Uh, I, as always, want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato. You can see his beautiful mug on our site. Now he's our fantastic producer who makes us all sound what, Elizabeth? Podcast smooth. Oh, boy. At least one person on this podcast always sounds podcast smooth. want to tell our listeners that we're going to take a break for the holidays, but we'll be back here the first week of January. And again, don't forget, tis the season. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next year. Mm-hmm.